This is Space Time Series 23, Episode 67, for broadcast on the 3rd of July, 2020. Coming up on Space Time. Growing evidence that Pluto and the other large Kuiper Belt objects probably started out with liquid oceans. NASA looking at a new mission to the planet Neptune. And a new study says there could be dozens of intelligent alien civilizations out there. Or maybe not. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers say there's growing evidence that Pluto and the other large Kuiper Belt objects probably started out with liquid oceans which have slowly frozen over. The findings reported in the journal Nature Geoscience suggest accretion of new material during Pluto's formation may have generated enough heat to create a liquid ocean which persisted beneath the icy crust right through to the present day. That's despite the dwarf planet's distant orbit some 30 to 40 times further away from the Sun than the Earth. This so-called hot start scenario contrasts with the traditional view of Pluto's origins as a ball of frozen ice and rock in which radioactive decay could eventually have generated enough heat to melt some of the ice and form a subsurface ocean. The study's lead author, Carver Berrison, from the University of California, Santa Cruz, says because water expands when it freezes and contracts when it melts, the different hot start and cold start scenarios have different implications for Pluto's tectonics and resulting surface features. Images of Pluto taken by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft have allowed scientists to compare their observations with what's been predicted under these different thermal evolution models. Now, if Pluto started out cold and the ice melted internally, the dwarf planet would have contracted, producing compression features on its surface. On the other hand, if it started out hot, it would have expanded as the ocean froze, resulting in extension features on the surface. And the images from New Horizons are showing lots of evidence of expansion, but no signs of compression. So these observations are consistent with the idea that Pluto actually started out with a liquid ocean. Mind you, the thermal and tectonic evolution of a cold start Pluto is actually a bit complicated. That's because after an initial period of gradual melting, the subsurface ocean would begin to refreeze. So, compression of the surface would occur early on, followed by more recent extension. On the other hand, with the hot start scenario, extension would occur throughout Pluto's history. The authors say the oldest surface features on Pluto looks like there's been both ancient and modern extension on the surface. The two main energy sources would be heat released from the decay of radioactive elements in the rock and gravitational energy released as new material bombarded the surface of the growing protoplanet. And the study's calculations show that if all the gravitational energy was retained as heat, it would inevitably have created an internal liquid ocean. Of course, in practice, much of that energy would have radiated away from the surface, especially if the accretion of new material occurred slowly. The authors calculated that Pluto would have started out hot if it formed over a period of less than 30,000 years. However, if accretion took place over a few million years, a hot start would only be possible if really large impactors buried their energy deep beneath the surface. The new findings also imply that other large Kuiper Belt objects probably also started out hot and would therefore also have had early oceans. And these oceans could still persist today in the largest objects, such as the dwarf planets Eris and Makamake. This is space-time. Still to come, NASA looking at a new mission to the planet Neptune, 
And a new study says there could be dozens of intelligent alien civilizations out there. Or maybe not. All that and more still to come on Space Time. When NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft flew past the planet Neptune's strange moon Triton three decades ago, it wrote what could only be described as a planetary science cliffhanger. Voyager 2 is the only spacecraft to have visited Neptune, and it's left lots of unanswered questions in its wake. It takes the ice giant 165 Earth years to complete a single orbit around the Sun. And the images taken by Voyager 2 of both Neptune and its biggest moon, Triton, were absolutely stunning, as well as being incredibly puzzling. Triton revealed massive dark plumes of icy material erupting from cryovolcanoes on its surface. These plumes rose straight up into the sky until they reached high-altitude winds, which carried the ejector clouds across the landscape. And as material rains out of these clouds, they leave dark streaks across the frozen world's surface. Also, the images showed that Triton's icy landscape's really young, and it's been surfaced over and over again with fresh material. But it's not smooth like the ice moons Enceladus or Europa. Instead, part of it looks more like the surface of a cantaloupe. And that raises the question exactly, what material is it on the surface, and where did it come from? More basically... How could an ancient moon six times further away from the Sun than Jupiter still be active today? Is there something in Triton's interior that's still warm enough to drive this activity? Or is it simply gravitational tidal heating from friction generated as Triton orbits Neptune? To try and untangle these mysteries, NASA are looking at a new mission in its discovery program to study the distant worlds of Neptune and Triton. Called Trident after the three-pronged spear carried by Neptune, the ancient Roman god of the sea, the proposed mission is one of four now being considered. Depending on the budgets available, up to two missions will eventually be selected next year for a planned launch later this decade. Investigating Triton and how it's changed over time will give scientists a better understanding of how the solar system's evolved. The oddities of Triton would fill an almanac. As Neptune rotates, Triton orbits in the opposite direction, and no other large moon in our solar system does that. Furthermore, Triton's orbit lies in an extreme tilt, offset from Neptune's equator by 23 degrees. Triton isn't where it used to be. All the evidence suggests it likely migrated from the nearby Kuiper Belt, a ring of comets, icy debris and frozen worlds left over from the formation of the solar system, now circling the Sun, beyond the orbit of Neptune. Triton also has an unusual atmosphere, which includes an ionosphere some 10 times more active than any other moon in the solar system. Triton's climate's also dynamic and changing, with a steady flow of organic material like nitrogen snowing onto the surface. Principal investigator Louise Proctor from the Lunar and Planetary Institute says Triton's always been one of the most exciting and intriguing bodies in the solar system, tantalizing Voyager 2 images, providing only glimpses of this bizarre crazy moon that no one understands. And those mysterious cryovolcanic plumes we talked about earlier, they're especially intriguing. Plumes seen on Saturn's moon Enceladus, and possibly also present on Jupiter's moon Europa, are thought to be caused by water from a global subsurface ocean on both moons, being forced through their thick icy crusts. 
If a subsurface ocean is also the source of the plumes on Triton, which lies much further out in the solar system than either Europa or Enceladus, the discovery would give scientists new information about how interior oceans form. Unlike the other known ocean worlds, Triton's potential ocean likely developed after it was captured by Neptune's gravity, and that raises the question of how. If selected, Trident would expand science's understanding of exactly where in our solar system water can exist. Figuring out what factors lead to a solar system body having the necessary ingredients to be inhabitable, including water, would be one of Trident's three major goals. The spacecraft would carry instruments to probe the moon's magnetic field in order to determine if an ocean lies inside. Other instruments would investigate the intense ionosphere, organic-rich atmosphere, and the bizarre surface features. A second goal of this mission would be to explore vast, unseen lands. Remember, Triton offers the largest unexplored solid surface in the solar system, this side of the Kuiper Belt. Most of what we know about this moon's come from the Voyager 2 data, but the thing is we've only seen about 40% of the moon's surface. Trident would be able to map most of the remainder. And Trident would use a full-frame imaging camera to capture the same plume-rich area Voyager 2 image, but in full Neptune shine, when the sun's reflected light illuminates the dark side of Triton. That way, scientists could observe changes since the last visit and learn more about just how active Triton is. Triton's third major goal would be to understand how that mysterious surface keeps renewing itself. This surface is truly remarkable. It's very young, geologically speaking, possibly only 10 million years old, and it has almost no visible craters. There's also the question of why it looks so different from the other icy moons and features unusual landforms like dimpled cantaloupe terrains and protruding walled plains. The answers could shed light on how landscapes develop on other icy bodies. The proposed launch date for a Trident mission to Neptune and Triton would be October 2025, with October 2026 as a backup. That would take advantage of a once-in-13-year window when Earth's properly aligned with Jupiter. The spacecraft could then use the gravitational pull of Jupiter as a slingshot straight to Triton for an extended 13-day encounter in 2038. If Triton arrives before 2040, scientists could determine what's powering the plume activity. Any later, the sun would move too far north for the next hundred years, which I guess means the clock's ticking. This is space time. Still to come, a new study says there could be dozens of intelligent alien civilizations out there, or maybe not. And later in the science report, new research warns that one out of every eight animal and plant species on Earth is now heading for extinction. And where to blame? All that and more still to come on Space Time. New guesstimates suggest there could be around three dozen intelligent alien civilizations spread around the Milky Way galaxy. It is, of course, one of those ultimate questions. Is there anyone out there, or are we alone in the universe? But then there's the Fermi paradox. If intelligent life does exist elsewhere in the galaxy, why haven't we noticed it yet? After all, even Star Trek's prime directive was honoured more in its breach. Now researchers have updated their estimates, suggesting there could be several dozen intelligent civilizations spread throughout the Milky Way galaxy. The new guesstimates are just that, guesstimates. They're based partly on an updated look at the old Drake equation, derived by astrophysicist Frank Drake back in 1961. Drake multiplied a number of unknowns, 
The rate of star formation in the Milky Way, which we now know to be about one solar mass star per Earth year. You multiply that number by the number of those stars with planetary systems, which we also now know to be most of them. You then multiply that number by the number of planets capable of hosting life as we know it. And we really only know our own solar system's example for that, and that's one planet, Earth. He then multiplied that resultant by the fraction of planets where life actually appears. And again, we only have our own solar system as the example, so that's still one. And that number was then multiplied by the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life has emerged. Now, I was going to say we only have the one example of that, Earth, but based on what's been happening over the past few weeks, I'm no longer sure about that. And the result of all those calculations are then multiplied by the fraction of civilizations that developed detectable technology. That's then multiplied by the length of time those civilizations released detectable signals into space. Now, it's all guesswork, but it's also a lot of fun to consider, postulate over. This new study, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, has taken a slightly different approach to this problem, but using the same sort of formula. Using the assumption that intelligent life on other planets would have formed the same way it did here on Earth, the authors estimate there could be around 36 intelligent civilizations sprinkled around our galaxy. Now, their criteria is based on what science knows about our own planet and star system, which, after all, is the only example we know of. The Sun and Earth were formed some 4.6 billion years ago, so the first requirement is that any host planet must be at least around 5 billion years old. Another is the need for the host star to have a similar chemical composition to the Sun. After all, that's what allowed life to form here on Earth. Researchers also say that the number of civilizations depends strongly on how long they've been actively sending out signals, such as radio transmissions from satellites and so on. Another important point is just how long a technological civilization would last. After all, the high-tech world we know has only been around for 100 years. And there have been a few close calls which could have brought it to an end, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the world came very close to nuclear war. And although it's the one everyone talks about, we now know there have been other similar close calls as well. I guess Albert Einstein put it best when he said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. The authors also point out that if their estimate of 36 intelligent civilizations is correct, they won't be nearby, with the likely average distance between civilizations being some 17,000 light-years. That would not only make detection difficult, but also communication. Remember, the most distant signals from Earth have only travelled about 100 light-years. After all, 34,000 years is a long time to wait for an answer. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Professor Fred Watson. The possibility of intelligent life forms existing uh, within our universe, or more specifically within our galaxy, and the suggestion has been that um, there could be at, at least 30, which just sort of blows my mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a properly refereed publication, as you said. It's in the Astrophysical Journal, and of course it's been picked up in the popular science media. I'm looking at the story. I, I actually did look at the original paper, but the story, uh, I think the, the, um, the best account of it is in the physics.org uh, website, which is a great news website for physics and astronomy news. So... Basically, what we have here is effectively a rehash of the studies on the Drake equation. 
and basically putting in new values. Uh, and you can <laughs> think about the Drake equation, uh, that equation, of course, that's um, designed to give an idea based on probabilities of whether there are any communicable, communicating extraterrestrial civilizations within range of us. That has, if I remember rightly, seven parameters in it, and they're all guesses, apart from mm. one, which is we now know that probably all stars have planets, which we didn't know when Frank Drake put this together back in 1960, I think it was. So this is a, essentially a re-evaluation of the Drake equation using some new statistical techniques. As I said, I did have a look at the paper. There's a lot in it, a lot of um, assumptions made, of course, as always. To cut to the chase, they come to the conclusion, the authors who are based actually at the University of Nottingham in uh, the UK, the authors come to the conclusion that there could be at least 30 uh, intelligent civilizations throughout our galaxy. In other words, the, the, the sun's home in the universe. The thing is, just to put this in context, probably a year and a half ago, a paper came out from the University of Oxford that said that number is actually zero. So other communicating intelligent life forms are so rare as to be vanishingly small certainly within our galaxy and maybe in the distant universe there might be ones but they're so far away that it, it doesn't matter so in a sense you you get what you put into it and you might say it's the same it's the same sort of uh, mantra that we we have with computer programs uh, rubbish in rubbish out i'm not saying that these authors have put rubbish in there but with this with this particular kind of study you can put in you can kind of put in what you like uh, and you get what you like out. There are big uncertainties, of course, even on these values. Uh, the scientific paper itself specifies what the uncertainties are in the outcomes. They were large. Uh, but the, the sort of best guess estimate, I think if I remember rightly, was 36 communicating uh, extraterrestrial civilizations within our galaxy. And it's based on things like how long civilizations last and those things going to it as well. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I suppose to come up with a number like that, you do have to make assumptions, but uh, would you call them educated guesses or would you take it further and say that there is some uh, science behind it? Yeah. Uh, you know, is, is, it a, is it a reasonable number to, um, to assume? Yeah, that, well, it is. They've certainly put all the right numbers in. They've basically taken the age of our sun as being the yardstick and speculating that that's the typical, the 4.6 billion year old solar system. They say, okay, well, that's the typical length of time it takes to evolve an intelligent civilization. And then they put in parameters as well, like the metallicity content of the sun. Now, metallicity to, a, to an astronomer means anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So these are the heavier elements, iron, silicon, carbon, oxygen, all of those, they're actually considered by astronomers to be metals because they're not hydrogen and helium. And so our sun has a particular value of its metal content, and they've stuck in that as well in their theories. They've got various criteria, weak and strong criteria that they apply that actually basically start off with different assumptions about what's happening. Just to give you an example of that, so you know what I'm talking about. Their strong criterion puts in the requirement for a star to have the metal content same, the same as that of the sun, which is actually quite rich in terms of its other elements. And that they're the elements that found their way into the earth when the earth was 
being formed and they're the things that we regard as our normal environment. So their strong criterion says, okay, put the metal content equal to the sun. And when you do that, you get this 36 active civilizations in the galaxy. Now, that's a small number compared with the 400 or so billion stars in the galaxy. So it's a needle in a haystack job. But they, in a sense, they're coming out with an encouraging answer to the SETI community, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence community. Could it sort of you know, create a catalyst for what to look for? Uh, going forward in terms of maybe identifying uh, stars with life-bearing planets and potential intelligent life. That's right. In fact, that's already happening. So, you know, you and I have spoken at length about the kinds of uh, solar systems, the, the kinds of stars that might have planets that could support life. By far, the commonest type of star in the galaxy is a variety of star that's nothing like the sun. These are red dwarfs, much fainter than the sun, but they're also where most of the planets have been found, partly because they're easy to find around red dwarfs. But you can have a habitable zone in a red dwarf. You could find an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of a red dwarf. But what we don't know too much about is the effect of the flares on the surface of red dwarfs. They're quite active in the way that the sun's active, but far more so. And so you find a strong candidate with an Earth-like planet around a red dwarf and then realise that it's being basked in lethal radiation from the star. That tends to put the odds down a bit. So it gets more exciting when you find a sun-like star with a planet the size of the Earth in orbit around it at the right distance. That starts to look a a lot more promising. And so they're the things that we should be looking for, exactly. Yeah. Um, I I know that a lot of people will be be excited by the prospect of uh, possibly 30-plus intelligent civilizations in our galaxy. The downside is that they are suggesting that they're on average 17,000 light years away, which ain't ain't close. Exactly. On average, that's the distance, 17,000 light years. It's a long way. 4.3 light years to the nearest star is a long way. So when you're talking about that sort of distance, it's difficult. And it, and it, it, it essentially rules out any kind of radio transmitted conversation because nobody wants to wait 34,000 years to get the answer back if you send a message there. That's Dr. Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. Time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that more than a million plant and animal species are now facing extinction. That's one in every eight animal plant species known. The findings by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services is based on a new analysis of some 15,000 scientific studies published over the past 50 years. Now, over the same period of time, planet Earth's human population has doubled from 3.7 billion in 1970 to 7.6 billion today. The 1,500-page study found more than four out of every 10 amphibian species, one in every 10 insect species, and one in every three sharks, marine mammal or coral reef-building animals, are likely to become extinct, some within the next few years. A new study claims differences in a specific region of the brainstem might explain variations in attention in people with autism. A report in the journal J Neuroscience claims that researchers got adult participants to watch letters flash on a screen and then push a button if the same letter appeared twice in a row. 
They then repeated the same task, but with distracting noises playing at random times. Researchers found that all the participants performed equally well, but those with autism had unusually small pupil dilations during the distraction compared to other participants. The authors say the findings suggest an abnormality in an area of the brainstem called the locus coeruleus, and it might explain why people with autism experience fixated behaviours and exaggerated responses to external stimulation. Ten new studies suggest that contrary to popular belief and the Jurassic Park movies, the first dinosaurs to walk on the planet probably laid soft-shelled eggs. One report in the journal Nature suggests that while dinosaurs developed hard-shelled eggs at least three times independently, the first were likely soft and were probably buried in moist sand or soil and then incubated by decaying plant matter, similar to some reptiles today. Meanwhile, in a second paper, researchers describe a football-sized soft-shelled dino egg that they discovered in Antarctica. The egg, likely to be around 66 million years old, is the first to be found on the frozen continent. The weight of the egg is a close second to one of the largest eggs ever found from any avian or non-avian dinosaur. But paleontologists admit that instead of a dinosaur, this egg might have been laid by a large marine reptile, such as a mosasaur. A new study claims older planets have a better chance of supporting life, which makes planet Earth about as good as it gets. Scientists from Macquarie University in Sydney have told the Goldschmidt Geochemistry Conference that rocky exoplanets, that is planets orbiting stars other than our Sun, which formed early in the life of the galaxy, seem to have had a greater chance of developing magnetic field and plate tectonics than planets which formed later on. See, if there's no magnetic field, the planet's not shielded from stellar radiation, and it will therefore tend to lose its atmosphere. And we know plate tectonics acts as a kind of thermostat for the Earth, creating the conditions which allowed life to evolve. The Earth's core is primarily iron and nickel, which some scientists had assumed would be necessary for tectonic development. However, the authors found that even planets containing very little iron could still develop plate tectonics if the timing's right. They say both these conditions are considered favourable for the development of life. And so they suggest that if alien life exists in our galaxy, it might have developed earlier in our galaxy's history rather than later, and that planets which formed more recently have less chance of developing life. We often talk about the growing problem of fake news and their motto of never letting the facts get in the way of a good story. And disturbingly, we seem to be seeing more and more of it these days in the mainstream media. Although, to be honest, it's always been there, especially in certain media outlets. After all, like tends to hire like, and that's led to a sort of inbreeding of bias where reporting's coloured by opinion. That's because they think you can't be trusted to reach your own conclusions based on just the facts. There are also a lot of lessons to be learnt about how to push fake news to the public from some of the more infamous hacks online. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics tells us about one epic COVID-19 conspiracy video that went viral very quickly using a sophisticated marketing program. Pandemic is a 28-minute, I think it is, a little mini-documentary, basically around the case of a researcher who's come out sort of quite virulently against all the plandemic or pandemics, what they would regard as conspiracies, misleading information. She's anti-vaccination. Judy Mikovits is her name. The documentary is about her and about how badly she was was treated by the system and that uh, she was therefore had to force to go on the on the activist foot because she was revealing a lot of information that the system did not want to reveal. The documentary's got full of the usual claims, you know, Bill Gates is behind everything, that 
that you know, flu vaccines increase the chance of contracting COVID virus. The virus was manipulated and created. Wearing masks makes it worse for you, all sorts of things. 5G towers come into it? I think 5G towers are in there somewhere, probably. But yeah, everything's in there, actually. If someone's described it as a hodgepodge of conspiratorial, paranoid and delusional claims. It was posted on YouTube and a few other social media all at the same time. It was quite a sophisticated publishing event. A range of different outlets, video outlets, and then followed up with uh, other areas like Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. They even used LinkedIn, which is the business sort of match-up site. And I don't know. So anything going that, that had any sort of way of promoting this documentary, in quotes, was used. And because as, as, as often, as soon as they were sort of, one was closed down, they were opening up others. And there was a, a grassroots campaign to spread the word, etc. It's been thoroughly debunked. People have gone through it point by point by point over its entire 28 minutes or however many minutes it is. The American Association for the Advancement of Science, Snopes, of course, and PolitiFact and Wikipedia, the BBC, Forbes, even you know, in-depth reports on YouTube itself, which is one of the mediums that we use to promote it. They've totally taken it apart step by step and show that the whole thing is made up, paranoid, as they say, full of lies, full of falsehoods, all sorts of things. But people are claiming it's the smoking gun as far as the uh, COVID-19 conspiracy and what they're trying to do when the vaccine finally comes out, you'll be injected with chips and all the usual stuff like that. What Big Pharma aren't telling you. Da, da, da. Yeah, well, that's right. What is it you think about the human psyche that does this? And I ask that for a very specific reason. I've got this friend, George, who spends a fortune on videos about conspiracy theories. He's, he's right now going through this whole thing about 9-11 and the truth behind what happened on 9-11 with the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and all this. He's virtually memorised these videos. And then you, you point him at some sites from, say, the Smithsonian Institute or the American Institute of Engineers, which totally debunks these con wacko conspiracy claims and, and explains in terms of engineering and science how, yes, these aircraft really did smash into these buildings and, and how it was the act of these aircraft smashing into the buildings which caused them to collapse and everything that followed from there on and how they really were a, a bunch of mad terrorists who were hijacking these aircraft that were involved in this and they don't even bother watching the videos. They just stick with the conspiracy theory idea. It, it seems to be something they like so much more. And this pandemic conspiracy video is the same sort of spiel. What does that say? That's right. I mean, there's various traits that people who follow conspiracy theories tend to have. I mean, and the conspiracy theorist can, is very, if nothing, is, is eclectic. They can go from one conspiracy theory to the next, even when they might be contradictory. For instance, that uh, at a recent rally in Melbourne, there were a couple of speakers talking about conspiracy of COVID-19. And one was saying COVID-19 is being used to put little chips in your body, etc. And then the sec next speaker was saying COVID-19 does not exist, so, which is a slight problem when you're sort of trying to convince an audience that, you know, does it exist or doesn't it? And is it a conspiracy of what sort? Oh, well, the um, chips have probably told you know, to say that. <laughs> well, that's the thing, that as soon as you try and debunk a conspiracy, you're part of the conspiracy. Exactly. Um, so there's really sort of the catch-22 about this. But there's a whole range of things. There's been various studies done quite recently, actually, where psychologists and various people have looked at conspiracies and tried to find out what are the common links between them that people sort of, you know, why do they do it? And the, the why is probably more accurate 
more interesting than the than the actual what in many cases because the what just keeps changing. But there's a mindset certainly for belief in conspiracies. I guess one of the intoxicating things about these conspiracy theorists and, and why they prefer to believe something that's totally made up rather than the science is simply that it makes them feel superior. It makes them feel like they know something that the rest of the plebeians out there in the real world don't know. They have an extra level of knowledge that way. That's right. It's sort of like special knowledge, which is yes. secret knowledge, which they keep telling everybody. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how it was ever secret. Yes, there is a certain sort of sense of superiority about themselves versus the sheep or the sheeple that you're just being led around by the nose, whereas I really know. And the reason they really know is because they only listen to one source of information or one style of source of information and it's always the same as you say they never actually go outside and look at alternative explanations especially explanations by experts they just go into the into the one little the room and they just keep hearing the same things to reinforce their views you can send them alternative information and they just will not consider it at all yeah that's what i found it's so frustrating poor george yeah, i've got a george myself too i know exactly what it's like that's tim mendham from australian skeptics and that's the show for now Space Time is broadcast on Science Zone Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and through both iHeartRadio and on TuneIn Radio. Or you can subscribe and download Space Time as a free podcast through Apple, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Audioboom, Podbeam, Android, Castbox, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite download podcast provider. You can help support the show and the work we do by visiting the Spacetime online shop and grabbing yourself a few goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to commercial-free double-episode versions of the show, as well as bonus audio content and other rewards. Just go to our Patreon page through SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for all the details. If you want more space time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpaceTimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our SpaceTime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash SpaceTimeWithStuartGary. SpaceTime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to SpaceTime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 